Welcome to Intersections, the RIT podcast. Heart failure costs the U.S. $34 billion a year, with most of those costs due to repeated hospitalization. Today, David Borkholder, RIT's Bausch & Lomb Professor of Microsystems Engineering, talks with Nicholas Kahn, a postdoctoral fellow and founder of Heart Health Intelligence, about a new invention that could help patients easily monitor their health in the privacy of their own bathrooms. Like most, most of my research, it started with a, a phone call. Uh, we'd had a successful DARPA program to create wearable technology for soldiers uh, to help address traumatic brain injury from BLAST. That program manager had moved to Google to participate in a new group that was supposed to be DARPA-like there, to pursue crazy ideas uh, that might have a big impact. So he called and he wanted to do something in the in-home cardiovascular monitoring space and asked if we had ideas. And that's when I called Nick in and we started brainstorming. So I came down to Dave's office, told me about the opportunity. It was super exciting. And we started thinking about what the biggest challenges are with in-home monitoring. And adherence and people's ability to utilize technology in their home was always the forefront of, of the problems with monitoring. So we thought about could we integrate the technology that we already have expertise in into a steering wheel or a computer mouse and you know none of those were something that we used every day and and I don't remember how we came to the bathroom but you suggested waste analysis which I didn't want to do for my PhD. Actually the waste analysis came after we had the idea where we said we maybe could do this too um, and that was part of brainstorming for for patents but I think we got in the bathroom because it it was the one place where you could ensure skin contact and people were going to use it every day. And then you think about when people do measurements. So usually people are using the bathroom first thing in the morning. They're at rest. It's before food and caffeine. Uh, and so you could, you could begin to, to imagine having a regular cadence of data collected in the home without the patient having to do anything out of the ordinary. So, so then, Nick, what did, what did so, we have to do to, to see if this was even possible? So then I ran upstairs, I strapped some electrodes onto my butt, and I wanted to find out if we could measure an ECG. And, and with some basic proof of concepts, we showed, I showed that we can actually measure this. So I went to uh, Lowe's or Home Depot, bought a wooden seat, which I cut out slots from to put some custom circuit boards in, test if we could measure some of the other things that are currently in the seat ran some testing in the lab without curtains yet. We hadn't built up our clinical testing area. So I'm in the corner with a hospital gown, you know, back open to the corner, trying to measure all these things and making sure it works. And, and then uh, once, once the data looked pretty good and we were able to do a basic proof of concept, we included that in the grant proposal, which we then submitted to Google. Right. And we tied in, so we started with electrocardiogram, but that platform allowed you to do some other measurements that were really important as well. So we could do a ballistic cardiogram, uh, which has a, a very long history, but uh, with modern signal processing capabilities, we're really able to extract robust signatures out of those waveforms. And then a photoplasmogram. Those combinations of those three measures allowed us to really open the aperture for the different measures that we could get out of this one platform. So the ballistic cardiogram is a mechanical, a measure of the mechanical forces of the heart. So as the heart contracts, it builds up pressure. The aortic valve opens and blood's forcefully ejected up into the aorta. That upward momentum pushes the body down ever so slightly. So we're able to pick up those and, and measure things like stroke volume and cardiac output. However, 
Uh, we didn't know how to do that at first, and it took us a long time of explorations. Absolutely. Yeah, when Nick and I started brainstorming how we would do this, it became clear that we really needed some clinical expertise. And I had done some collaborations with Carl Schwartz at the University of Rochester Medical Center. He runs their echocardiography unit. We got together and brainstormed the, the different things that we might do with this technology and, and integrated a lot of that, those ideas into the proposal. And Carl loved the concept. He, from the beginning, thought that it had a lot of potential for heart failure and worked with us and his knowledge of physiology, especially um, those with cardiovascular disease and, and the types of uh, signals and, and measurements that we could capture. And he was working with us in the lab, brainstorming on what the ballistic cardiogram even meant uh, from you know a physiology standpoint. And that helped us make, make pretty rapid progress in understanding the waveform and going about estimating clinically relevant parameters. We did a series of studies over a number of years. Uh, we started with normative subjects here at RIT, where we were developing some of the base algorithms, refining the, the technology. We had other collaborators in uh, the College of Art and Design and Industrial Design that were helping us with how do you integrate all these components into the seat and, and make functional elements out of components that are usually static, like standoffs. How do you uh, integrate measurement of mechanical forces into those and uh, design hinges that, that don't carry any load when the seat is down? But we, we did a series of human subject studies, and as, as the technology was refined, we started adding in subjects at the University of Rochester. And so there we were able to recruit heart failure subjects and, uh, and test same things we were doing with our, our normatives, test those subjects when they were coming in for routine exams. Um, and then we gathered a large number of subjects where they were coming in for a standard echocardiogram. So we got a broad range of disease states, um, ages, et cetera. Um, and I think that really gave us confidence in the core technology and what, what was possible with the technology. It was a long path from developing the hardware, running the studies, and then we had data in hand for a while before we really cracked the code for stroke volume and blood pressure. And we always knew that the seat had a lot of potential for excitement. Anyone we ever talked to loved the concept. It was out of the ordinary. It was something that captured people's imaginations, but also kind of was a thinker. And you had to think through why it was worthwhile. And then you realize, like, this is great. And we, Dave, you and I had talked a lot about potentially publishing early, not publishing certain things. And, you know, when was the right time to kind of put out our work? And I think that it was unexpected when I published my most recent journal publication where we did finally have robust numbers, robust studies, and that allowed us then to kind of ride the wave of attention. Do you want to talk about maybe why we didn't publish sooner? With technologies like this, a lot of the advancements are algorithm-based, and Nick, you, you've done a fabulous job in terms of creating really novel, robust algorithms because you, you are doing these measurements outside of the clinic, right? So there's, there is no adult supervision at all as you gather this data. You have motion artifacts, et cetera, and so you, you need to be able to take that dirty data stream and make it a clean data stream, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, well, as he, as he graduated, this was a, a time for us to begin thinking about could we really translate this technology um, so they can have a, a profound impact in the way that we treat cardiovascular disease. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and 
start a business and this was the perfect platform to do that. We had a lot of scientific background and, and work that went into making this really unique technology robust. So I began, after I finished up the work, the algorithm development over the first year or so after my PhD, I then focused effectively on publishing, writing grants, and business development to figure out how to commercialize this. So Nick, as you, you look at the commercialization path for this, um, there, there could be a consumer path, there could be a path where it's, it's managed through the healthcare system. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and how you think that commercialization will proceed? Yeah, so I've had a lot of interest from people wanting to buy the seat directly from Heart Health Intelligence. I've gotten calls from all over the world, actually, already, uh, people wanting to buy the seat now. And and while that's a, a very interesting use case and we think there's a potential for a consumer product, our passion is to bring regulated medical devices to market, clinical-grade devices that can have an impact in people's lives and provide meaning and actionable information. And part of the challenge with this data set and the, the type of data we're capturing is, what is the average consumer going to do with the data? And it's going to be an important element for us to research that over the years. And we've got some grants we've submitted where we're looking at how to present data to people in a meaningful, actionable way. Um, but we see really the healthcare market and going through as a regulated medical device is our first entry into the market. And that's really focused on heart failure, which is a specific type of cardiovascular disease, because there's a pressing need there to reduce hospitalization rates. These patients are in and out of the hospital. Almost half of patients end up back in the hospital within 90 days of discharge, three months. Because of that, we want to be able to help people live a better quality of life in their own homes and you know, prolong the, the comfort that they have while not necessarily being in the hospital. And what do you think the impact could be on cost of healthcare? So heart failure costs the US $34 billion a year with 80% of those costs due to hospitalization. So if we can reduce hospitalizations uh, by a rate that uh, an implantable device, CardioMEMS, achieved, we could potentially save the US over $10 billion a year. It's pretty significant. Yeah, that's uh, part of the motivation for going after this market rather than the consumer market. And the types of monitoring that you could do would be similar to what many hospitals are trying to do with in-home monitoring today. Right. So a lot of heart failure clinics across the country are sending their patients home with connected blood pressure cuffs, bathroom scales, and even handheld ECG monitors such as AliveCore. And while there is some promise for these devices, there's one overarching problem that's consistent with everyone we've spoken with, and that's adherence. And patients just won't use these as often as they should. And despite having every single heart failure patient being told by their doctor to measure their body weight every day, only 14% do. So those, those numbers are low, and we seek to change that with a device that everybody uses no matter what. Everything we do in my lab is very applications driven, right? So we're trying to solve, we're trying to solve problems. Which is what brought me to your lab. I didn't want to do a research project that was just on the books that had no practical relevance that, you know, would take five years minimum to see in a product, although <laughs> six years later, I'm still working on it. So, so when we, when we have a challenge, we like to brainstorm in a really open way. We're very comfortable together. So we're able to, to brainstorm and toss out crazy ideas, and then you build on those crazy ideas. In my lab, we tend to work with people across many disciplines, um, very non-traditional collaborations. And I think that, that that helps you view things through a very 
different lens. I know that when I was doing the original DARPA program, um, I worked really closely with Kim Sherman in industrial design. It opened my eyes to what what they do and the way that they think and how that brings a different dimension to the way that you tackle problems. Um, and I think that this was the same way. Yeah, and, and, you know, one thing, while you're very tough on us with publications and, you know, scientific rigor, you are always open to any suggestion as far as how to solve a problem. And nothing's too wacky if it makes sense and if we can articulate it clearly. And thinking things through is important, but, you know, also thinking about where could we put in technology that no one else would think of. You know, there, there's a need there and it's unsolved and there's a way to do it and we'll just figure it out. Yeah. And you have to take risks, right? right. It, it, almost every time I start a project, I don't know that it will be able to do what we say we want to do. So you, you just have some degree of confidence that you got the right skill sets and that you'll find, the, you'll find a path that gives you a workable solution. Thanks for listening to Intersections, the RIT podcast, a production of RIT Marketing and Communications. To learn more about our university, go to www.rit.edu. And to hear more podcasts, find us on iTunes or visit us at www.soundcloud.com slash rittigers or at www.rit.edu slash news slash podcasts.